Thank you, Ensemble. Take your Bibles tonight and join me in turning to Mark chapter number 6 this evening. Mark chapter number 6. And while you're turning, I want to thank Pastor again for the opportunity for us to be here. When they moved uh, from Statesville, that was really a bittersweet moment for us because they had been a blessing, both Pastor and uh, Mrs. Wagner, to students of ours that went came from Lattimore up to Statesville. Uh, from time to time, I'll be talking to some of those alumni from their years of ministry, and they always uh, speak highly of their time there at the church under the Wagner's leadership. And so you always miss that when you have a good couple that uh, leaves a church. But our loss was your gain. And it sounds like you folks had a full day today, this morning, in serving the public servants as they... Uh, came through the line, and I want you to know I'm well aware of that. I'm not, I didn't come to preach for an hour tonight, all right? And, uh, but yet, I hope that uh, you'll pause for just a moment to realize that somebody a lot greater than me has something for you tonight, and that's God. And uh, every time I come to church, every time I open the Bible, you know what? I want God to work in my heart. And so I pray that on this Sunday night that the Lord will help us this evening. And uh, boy, it is just so good to see uh, Daniel and Kelly here. Thank you for taking good care of them. And uh, we couldn't straighten them out in North Carolina, so we shipped them to Tennessee. <laughs> you folks just have a way about you, I guess. And, uh, but it's a delight being able to watch both of them grow through their college years and uh, to bring them this moment uh, in their lives and service. And I'm just I'm happy and delighted to see how the Lord's using them. Mark chapter 6 tonight, I'd like to begin reading in verse number 45. The Bible says, "...and straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go, before, go to the other side before unto Bethsaida while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them." And about the fourth watch of the night he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit, and cried out. For they all saw him, and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them, and he saith unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered, for they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. When I was a kid growing up in rural North Carolina, I discovered very quickly that I enjoyed watching storms. I remember one, one week each summer I was farmed out to my mamaw's house, and I always loved going to Mamaw's house because Mamaw paid me to do things that Dad never would pay me to do. <laughs> Mamaw would ask me what my favorite food was. That never happened too much at the house. But just to be honest, Mamaw spoiled me to death. And I always loved those weeks. I have a lot of fond memories. And I can still remember one time sitting out on the old wooden swing on the porch. She lived in just an old modest house that was just only maybe 20 feet or so from the main road that came by. And I can still remember one day I was sitting in the swing. I was swinging and I could smell the rain that was approaching. Have you ever done that before? 
And I remember smelling the rain, and it wasn't too far beyond that that all of a sudden the big drops began to hit the pavement, and they began to pitter and patter. And about that time, thunder roared so much so that it would shake the old seals, window seals of that farmhouse and just cause them to vibrate and rattle, and then lightning would flash uh, through the sky. And about that time, Mamma would come out on the front porch, and she'd say, Boy, you need to get in this house. It's storming out here. Those are some of the saddest words I ever heard in my childhood. I can still remember we lived in a mobile home uh, growing up, and anytime there was a storm, my overprotective mother would make me sit in the middle of the mobile home floor, and I couldn't get up near the windows. Uh, my mom was the kind, it'd be like, Honey, now you're playing with that pillow. Be careful, you're going to put your eye out. You know, it was just, she was very protective. And I used to hate it because I could see the rain. Uh, hit the window sills, hit the windows, and I could hear the thunder and see lightning flash from a distance just in the middle of the room, but I couldn't get in on the action. Uh, years later, I remember driving through the state of Nebraska. First time I'd ever been to Nebraska, and I'm going to tell you, it is flat. I mean, it is so flat. There's a reason there are no curves in the roads in Nebraska. I mean, it's just big straight shots everywhere you go. I still remember I was riding and driving a van down the road. A storm moved in, and as much as I love North Carolina and Tennessee, I'll just be honest with you, I've never seen a lightning storm like I saw that day in Nebraska. I'm telling you, if there was ever a fireworks show, it was that day when God just took a lightning bolt and flung it from one cloud to another, and it would vibrate and pulsate seemingly for like five and six seconds at a time, and finally God would let it go, and then He would fling another one. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. But you know, even to this day, I enjoy watching a storm. But I have a confession to make. I don't enjoy being in them. It's one thing to see the beauty of the storm from the outside because you're not threatened by it, so to speak. It has a beauty to it. But when you're in the midst of it, it's very hard to see the beauty of what God is doing. And ladies and gentlemen, tonight we find the disciples in their second storm recorded in Scripture. The first one was in Mark chapter 4. Jesus was asleep in the boat. The disciples said, Carest thou not that we perish? Now in this one, Jesus is not in the boat, and they experience a storm in the Sea of Galilee. And just as there is a beauty in the storms that you watch from a distance, ladies and gentlemen, even though it's hard to see, there's a beauty and the storms that sometimes you go through. And I can't give you all the details tonight. I can't explain to you the, how the beauty of it arrives. But I know this, that God is perfect and that God has a way of painting a picture sometimes even in the midst of what seemingly is a horrible backdrop. And so I just want to take you through the story tonight just for the next few minutes. I want you to see how God worked in the hearts of His disciples. And I want you even more to see tonight how God wants to work in your own heart. Now we begin our story tonight by first of all seeing the planning of the, of the Savior. And we find that in verse 45. Now before we talk about it, let me just tell you, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people without the help of the local soup kitchen or the U.S. government. I mean, Jesus has just fed thousands of people in a miraculous fashion and no sooner than they've cleaned up. You say, brother, we know about feeding a lot of people. We did that today. 
And so after that, Jesus tells His disciples, He says, Hey, I want you to get into the ship and I want you to go into the other side. But before we get in the thick of the story tonight, I want you to pay attention to the manner in which Jesus told them to get into the boat. It's summed up in a very uh, non-important word in many of our minds. But I think it carries the greatest importance tonight. You say, what is that word? When the Bible says, and here it is, straightway, He constrained His disciples to get into the ship and go on the other side. The word straightway, the, the word literally means without any hesitation. So understand, when the work is done without any hesitation, Jesus says, alright guys, listen, get into the boat and go into the other side. He tells them without any hesitation. Now, the manner in which He told them carries great significance. You say, why is that? Alright, let me illustrate. You know, there used to be a day when you actually had to ask people for directions. The reason I say that is now everybody has GPSs. They have this little woman in the box that tells them where to turn. They have these phones that tell you, make a right turn. I've, heard, I've had my fill of this, this phrase with my GPS, make a legal U-turn. I'm like, why didn't you tell me to turn sooner? Why did you wait until the very last second to tell me? Or why does the road look nothing like what's on my screen? But there used to be a day in which you actually ask people for directions. And imagine with me, if I let's say I'm lost in the area here and I'm trying to get to this church and I say, tell me how to get to such and such Baptist church. And there's a blonde-headed girl behind the counter with a cell phone glued in her hand. And after asking her that question, 30 seconds later, she looks up at me and says, Hmm, what church did you say? And I say, such and such Baptist church. She says, uh, wow, I think you go out of here and you make a left. No, no, I think it's a right. And when you go a little farther up the road, you'll see a doomajiggy. And I think when you see that doomajiggy, it's near that. Well, I'm telling you, she has already lost me in the conversation long before that. I'm thinking, how can I get out of this conversation without offending this girl? But now let me say, if I went to an old country store here in the area, and I came up to a gentleman, and he's wearing a pair of pointer brand bib overalls. Alright, that's Tennessee origin right there. That's what I was raised with. And he's wearing a pointer brand bib overalls and a John Deere hat. And I walk into his store and I say, Sir, can you tell me how to get to so-and-so Baptist? And before I can even say the word church, he looks at me and says, Boy, you've come to the right place. Go out here. Not go out here. Go out here. And make a left. You'll go two miles and you'll see an old tree trunk that was struck by lightning three years ago. And once you pass that, you make a right. And you go another two miles and you'll see old man Henry's mule. And when you see that mule, the church will be another mile on the left. I can understand those directions. Don't give me left or right. Listen, you give me tree stumps and mules and I'll tell you, I can find anything. But here's my question to you tonight. What inspired my confidence between scenario one and scenario two? Now some smarty in here tonight would say, I'll tell you why. It was a woman that gave you the first set of directions. Uh, you better be careful about that, alright? I've met men who've put me on a goose chase too. 
But I'll tell you what made the difference in the direction giving. You know why my confidence was a lot higher in the second one? I'll illustrate it. Listen to me. Because He gave me directions. Here it is without any hesitation. When somebody hesitates, it's usually a moment of indecision or uncertainty. Aren't you glad tonight that God never hesitates? Now the Lord Jesus is sending them into this storm. And what amazes me that even in our humanity, we'd say that's not the way to go. Jesus, without any hesitation, directs them right into it. Why? Because He knows what's better for the disciples than they do. I have an admission to make. I think sometimes I know better. I think I know better what's better for me than God does. Now, if you're not that way tonight, just, just be long-suffering for the next minute. I'm glad you're visiting from heaven tonight. Good to have you here. But you know, there are times we say, I wouldn't chart that course. There's times that I don't want to go into that. And you know, I just have to sometimes just rest in the fact that God is directing me without any hesitation and let that comfort my heart. Because God always has a plan. And so first of all tonight, we see the planning of the Savior. But let's continue on. I want you to see second of all the praying of the Savior. That's found in verse 46. And when He had sent them away, He departed into a mountain to pray. Now when you read the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus did a lot of things. You'll find that He healed the sick. He raised the dead. You'll find that He, he did miracle after miracle after miracle. But one of the things that Jesus did in this passage was that He prayed. Now let me show you something tonight that I'm going to repeat in the next two to three minutes, not because I'm senile, but because I want you to get it. And here it is. If Jesus needed to pray, don't you think we need to pray? He departed into a mountain to pray. You know, you've had a very busy day today, haven't you? A lot of cooking went on. You know what probably meant yesterday was pretty busy. You know the stress that's created in a household before a homecoming or a big day on the Saturday before? It all starts about the Wednesday before. Your wife says, Honey, what would you like for me to cook at this meal we're having at the church? And we men, we think with our stomachs and we say, Well, I, I, this is my favorite. Why don't you cook that? And then your wife says, I, I don't think that'll work very well. Give me something else. And so we give her number two on our list and she says, I, I don't know that that'll work very well either. Now we don't say it at that point, but at that point we're thinking, Well, why even ask me if you're not going to cook my favorite stuff? I mean, that's, that's, that's what I wanted you to do. And so Friday night comes, your wife goes to the grocery store, she buys all the ingredients, she tells you, hey, on Saturday, listen, it's going to be a busy day, leave me alone, let me get this stuff done. And you're like, yes, ma'am. And so it's halfway through the day on Saturday, your wife comes to you with that look, and she says, honey, I need you to do me a favor. And you say, what's that? And she says, I need you to go to Walmart and buy the ingredients that I failed to buy. Now wives, I want you to know that's a traumatic thing to ask your husband to do. He can find the hunting and the fishing section, but he cannot find the spices and baking powder. 
And so you go and you go and you, or you're embarrassed as a husband. You have no clue where this stuff is at. You have to ask associates who don't know where it's at either. And after about a, an hour of wandering, you finally buy it. You come home. And now the tension's in your own soul as well as your wife. You're like, I don't want to ever go back there again. Sunday morning comes and your wife says, all right, here's all of the stuff. Let's take it out to the car. And then when you get in the car, it's like, be careful about turns. You can't turn too quickly or you're going to spill this. And here you've got the crockpot brigade coming from the parking lot to the fellowship hall, men with crockpots in each hand, and then you get out there, you listen to preaching what seemed like three hours because you're smelling food and you can't stand it. And after you eat all that food and after you clean it up and after you get all the dishes and ladies, you reclaim the utensils that you put tape on because you don't want to lose them. After all of that work that weekend, listen to me, when you go home and set the crock pots on the counter and the dishes in the sink, you tell me the first thing you want to do. You say, I'll tell you what I'd like to do. I just sort of put the utensils in the dish fairy there that does the work for me, the dishwasher. And I mosey on over to the most comfortable chair in the house and I sit down. And then I hit this little lever right beside of me and it throws my feet up in the air. And gravity causes my back to fall backwards. And then I watch my eyelids for a little while. I mean, isn't that how we typically would be? That's where I'm at. But I'll tell you the thing about the Lord Jesus. After feeding 5,000 people, you know what He did? Instead of giving in to physical weariness, you know what He did? He prayed. Now, I'm not here to guilt you tonight and say, if you took a nap after this, you're not right with God, all right? That's not my aim, but I'm telling you what, if Jesus at times had to overcome physical weariness that He was subjected to, and He set a divine example for us to pray, if Jesus prayed, don't you think we ought to pray? When I see what Jesus did, it causes my excuses to fly and be cast to the wind. And ladies and gentlemen, we live in a day of prayerlessness, and that's why we live in a day of powerlessness. And in our churches, in the state of our country, in our churches, and our families, listen to me. Pray, pray, don't give in to weariness. There are times you say, I'm just too busy. Listen, Jesus, the Son of God, wasn't too busy to pray, and neither should we be. If Jesus needed to pray, don't you think we do? Jesus had private prayer in this passage. He departed into a mountain to pray. Now I'll tell you what, if altitude was a prerequisite for prayer, you folks in Tennessee, uh, you're pretty close to reaching God. You say, we've got mountains nearby, but I don't think it was the altitude nearly as much as the isolation, just getting away from everything and spending time with God. Jesus had a practice of private prayer. Jesus had a practice of personal prayer when He prayed to God as His heavenly Father. John 17, I think that's truly the Lord's Prayer. When you hear how Jesus prayed to His heavenly Father, I want to ask you, when's the last time you had a personal talk with God? I'm not talking about being irreverent. I'm not talking about using slang, but I'll tell you what, it is wonderful when you can get away from everything and you just talk to God like He's your best friend. After all, He is your heavenly Father if you're a Christian. If Jesus needed to pray, don't you think we need to pray? You say, preacher, I've been awful busy. Listen to me. Priorities, priorities, priorities. 
I think every time, every day we go with the day of prayerlessness, it's almost like we're saying, well, I'm better than Jesus. He needed to pray, but I don't. It may be that some of us tonight, we need to return to a practice of prayer like we once knew, or we need to go forward with a practice of prayer like we've never experienced. Number one, you see the planning of the Savior. Number two, you see the praying of the Savior. Number three, you see the panic of the disciples. This is where the story gets very interesting. I remember when I was a kid, I still remember an episode of panic that I had. I was a kid, and I was in the backyard, and when I looked up on the back steps that were cinder blocks, I saw a snake that was so big, it looked like it had dropped off of a tree out of Africa and landed right in my backyard. I'd never seen anything like it. And boy, I took off. I mean, I panicked. My heart raced. I ran around to the front of our trailer and I opened up the door and I said, Mom, Mom, there's a snake back there. And wouldn't you know it, by the time Mom got back there to open the door, the thing was gone. She thought I was crazy, but God is my witness. It was there. I still remember the panic that went through my little heart. You know what's worse than panicking as a child? I'll tell you what it is, panicking as an adult. And if you're here tonight and we're shooting, you'd have to say, you know what, I've been there. I'm talking about full-grown adults, now they're in a panic. Why? Because they're in a situation that's out of their control. Here they think that they're about to die. Which, by the way, tonight, if you're here, my friend, listen... You know, it's amazing how a man's perspective of life can change when he knows that death's a lot closer. But here's the sad thing. There are a lot of people out there today, they're living carefree and death's going to knock at their door without any notice and they'll pass off into eternity. And sad to say, they'll not be prepared. Why? Because they didn't give death a second thought. But listen, it would, it would behoove all of us tonight to think for just a moment, listen, this day could be our last. And my question is, are you prepared? I'm not asking you, are you in church tonight? I'm asking you, are you prepared to meet God? Has there been a time in your life where you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Because my friend, I'll tell you, if that you say tonight, I'm not sure of that, then I'll tell you there ought to be a legitimate panic in your heart because eternity is at stake. But here these disciples, they begin to panic. I want you to see this as I describe their panic tonight. Listen, you've got to understand this. If you focus on the storm, you'll live in fear. That's exactly what they did. If you focus on the storm and that's all you can see, listen, you will live in fear. Mark it down. There were several things that caused these disciples to panic. Number one was their location. Here they are in the midst of the sea. The storm doesn't come until they are well away from shore. I'll tell you what, if the storm's going to come in my life, I want it to come when I'm like 20 feet from the shore. Because if I have to, I'll jump out of the boat and wade back to shore, and it can go. But you know what happened here? They're isolated where now they can't get back to the bank. There's no human way that they can make it back. You say, why did God do that? I'll promise you, He didn't do that because He was mean or careless. God didn't look down and say, I'm going to teach those boys a lesson. I'm just going to give them a school of hard knocks to make their lives miserable for the fun of it. God didn't do something over here in China and then turn around and say, Oh my, I left these boys stranded in Galilee. Now we're in trouble. 
But I think God let them get to the point of isolation when they look north, south, east, and west. There's no way to get back to the bank and it only leaves them one way to look and that's up. But I'll tell you, that's a panicky feeling. They were panicking because of their location. They were panicking because of their laboring. He saw, and He saw them toiling and rowing. You know what those boys were doing? They were doing the best they could to get back to the shore. Now I know there's some of you tonight, you say, well I'll tell you what, had I been those disciples and I experienced what happened back in Matthew or Mark chapter 4 where Jesus was in the boat and calmed the sea, if I'd have been on that boat, I'd have stood up and looked every last one of them in the eye and said, listen boys, you need to quit your crying. Just two chapters ago, Jesus got us out of this mess and we need to call on Him now. Listen, you can act pious all you want. But it's amazing how quickly we forget, isn't it? God delivers us from one episode and we panic another. Their location and then their laboring, they're, doing, they're tired. They're doing all they can. Have you ever heard people make this statement, boy, every time I go two steps forward, it's like they push me three steps back. You ever heard that? I'm not even going to ask, have you ever made that statement? Because we all have. Sometimes it just seems a little futile, doesn't it? It's like I'm trying to do the best I can and I can't get out of this and the panic grows in their hearts and then you see the lateness of the hour. How long did they have to endure this? For the wind was contrary unto them and about the fourth watch of the night He cometh unto them walking upon the sea. You know when deliverance came for them? It came when they were just about to die. You know when I like to be delivered as early as possible... You know, when I like to be delivered out of the storm, I don't want to wait until the second watch of the night. I don't want to wait until the third, and I definitely don't want to wait until right before the sun gets up again. But Jesus did that. You know what I've learned about Bible college students? They, they believe in the doctrine of procrastination. Doing stuff at the last minute. Let me, let me tell you something. When God seemingly does something at the last minute, it's not because He's a procrastinator. It's because His sense of timing is better than ours. You know, it's interesting in this story. This story in Mark 6 is the same story in Matthew chapter 14 where Peter walks on the water. Mark just doesn't give us as much detail, but Matthew for some reason did. You remember that story? They look out there and they see somebody and they don't know who it is. And then when they realize it's Jesus, Peter does the unthinkable. Peter steps out of that boat. He walks on the water. And as he's making his way to Jesus, do you remember what happened? He began to pay more attention to the waves and the wind than he did Jesus. And he began to sink. And I've done the same exact thing. You see, if you focus on the storm, you'll live in fear of the storm. Peter taught us that. My friend, you're here tonight. You say, I am being squeezed. I am being stretched. We all are to some extent. 
you look at somebody's life in this church, you say, oh, she has the perfect life. He has, there's nothing that ever happens to them. That's because we all come to church with our game faces on. But my friend, if you're here panicking tonight, listen. I want you to listen very carefully to my next point. You see the panic of the disciples, but then I want you to see the peace of the Savior. Verse 49. It says, But when they saw Him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out, for they all saw Him and were troubled. I'm going to tell you tonight, you know where the biggest storm was raging? I don't think the biggest storm was raging on the Sea of Galilee. I think it was raging in the heart of every disciple. They were troubled. When Jesus spoke, peace be still, I think the greatest miracle wasn't the fact that those wind and waves obeyed Him. I think the biggest miracle is God reached into their hearts and gave them peace. I think it's a miracle that God can do that. No amount of human salve or doctrine can do what the grace of God can do. After being troubled, and immediately He talked with them. How did Jesus bring them peace? I think their peace of heart came not from peace be still. It's when they heard these words. It is, be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Let me explain to you the significance of that. When I was a kid, I was terribly scared of the dark. So much so... Now this will give you an idea. In the midst of a North Carolina summer, our mobile home did not have air conditioning. Our dad, my dad said, I don't believe in it. Like he told me a lot of things. I just don't believe in it, you know. And so it would be so hot in the summertime, but I was so scared of the dark, I'd close every window and I'd pull the covers up to here and just sweat to death as if that blanket was going to protect me from anything. But I remember one night I was laying in the bed. I was terribly scared of the dark. What seemed like 10 hours was probably just 10 minutes. And on the other side of the trailer, I heard all of a sudden slow footsteps begin making their way down that long hallway from my mother and dad's bedroom. And when I heard that, immediately this, I was so paralyzed with fear, I said, they have killed mom and dad, and now they are coming for me. I honestly thought that. Now any sane kid would have raised the windows, jumped out and ran to the neighbor's house. Not me, I was paralyzed. Those slow footsteps made their way through the living room and after making their way through the living room, then those feet hit that linoleum floor in the kitchen. My bedroom was right beside the kitchen and as those footsteps were slowly coming my way, my mind was racing and playing with me and I thought in a matter of moments they're going to kill me too. The footsteps stopped at the threshold of my bedroom in the kitchen and I'll never forget, a hand grabbed the refrigerator door and when it opened, the light turned on and I saw the image of my mother. I'm going to tell you, I melted like butter when I saw that. I was like, <sighs> I can't imagine how these disciples must have felt when they're sitting in a boat thinking they're about to die, and all of a sudden they hear somebody, a familiar voice, say, Be of good cheer, it is I! Immediately they know that's Jesus. You know, every once in a while we just need to be reminded that He is there. You think about what Jesus told them. First of all, be of good cheer. Is that what you want to hear when you have a bad day? 
Let's say you've had a bad day and Pastor Wagner sticks his head in your office or your, your place of work and says, Hey you, be of good cheer. You're like, I know he's a pastor, but I feel like killing him. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you, before you get too angry, just remember who said this, it was Jesus. You're here tonight, you say, my heart's been filled with panic. Now, I don't necessarily imagine it in my voice tonight, but imagine it in His when Jesus said, Be of good cheer. Why? It is I. I'm here. Be not afraid. Sometimes that's the words that we need to hear that bring peace to our hearts. The peace of the Savior. But the last thing I want to show you tonight is the problem of the disciples. We find it in verse 52. Verse 51 says, And He went up unto them upon the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. But here's the problem, verse 52, For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, because their heart, for their heart was hardened. Let me ask you a question. How long before this story, was it ten years that Jesus fed the 5,000? No, it was probably hours. Less than a day before, Jesus had fed 5,000 people. And then people called disciples. You know what happened? They forgot. But don't you be too hard on them. Because we do too. Why'd they forget? It's the Bible says, for their hearts were hardened. I'm telling you, the more I learn about my heart in the Bible, the less impressed I am. My heart left to itself would destroy me. My heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And my heart has a tendency to get hard. In just a matter of hours, these disciples, their heart was hardened and they forgot what Jesus had just done. You know, there's some things that are very good when they're soft, like fresh homemade bread. Have you ever had that just fresh out of the oven? There was a household in West Virginia. Whenever that woman made homemade bread, I'm going to tell you something, it was delicious. And I can still remember opening the tin foil and about getting steam burns from where it was just, it was just piping hot. And then we would take homemade strawberry jam and then real butter. Not this margarine stuff, that's plastic. I'm talking about real butter and just putting it on there. Boy, that bread was so soft. But you know what? You let that bread set out for about a day and it's not even worth being bird's food. You go to a meal like today and you find somebody that's made a homemade coconut cake without the help of Betty Crocker or Duncan Hines. And by the way, I'm not against them, but I'm just saying there's something about it when you come to the table and you see something that's homemade. You go up to that cake and you think, boy, I can't wait to just put a blade in that thing and let that blade just weep right through that soft cake and then I'm going to cut a huge hunk and put it on my plate. And so you take the knife and you come up to the cake and you put it on top of the cake, but to your dismay, it does not sink, it just sits there. And so you think, well, I've just got to get it started. And so you begin to go back and forth, and before you know it, you find yourself sawing this cake. <laughs> At that point, you're thinking, I'm not cutting this for me, I'm cutting this for somebody else, because this is hard. Ladies, we know your secrets. Icing hides a multitude of sin. Just like stick a butter or icing and take care of it. 
Why? Because you want cake that's soft, don't you? You want bread that's soft. Let me tell you what God wants tonight. He wants a heart that's tender and soft. And sometimes we disciples have to be reminded our hearts have gotten hardened. And we need to soften them again. So as we leave tonight, I want to beg you to do something. I want to beg you to see the beauty of the storm. It's hard for me to see it when I'm in it. But regardless, God's still working a beautiful thing. One of my favorite songwriters, didn't, I don't really find a lot of his music, but what I do find, I find interesting, is an old black preacher by the name of Charles Tenley. I think he pastored up in Philadelphia. Charles Tenley wrote songs that were not like of the greatest, most motivational sort as far as energetic. But you know, he wrote this song. He said, If the world from you withhold of its silver and its gold, and you have to get along with meager fare, just remember in his word how he feeds the little bird, take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. Charles Tenley wrote that. One night in his study, when a wind swept through his study, he wrote the words to a song, Nothing Between My Soul and the Savior, which is an invitation song that we commonly use today. But you know, there was another song that Charles Tenley wrote that I'll tell you, I have found myself on occasion. I found myself on occasion singing. It's comforted my heart. And I think if it had been written back in the days of the disciples, you know what? I think they would have sung it too. You say, what, what song is that? I don't know what the circumstances were, but apparently somehow, someway, Tenley had circumstances depress him in a moment of life and he penned these words. And many people have heard this, this song through the years. When the storms of life are raging, stand by me. When the storms of life are raging, Stand by me When this world is tossing me Like a ship upon the sea Thou who rulest wind and water Stand by me in the midst of tribulations, stand by me. In the midst of tribulations, stand by me. When the host of hell assail, and my strength begins to fail. Thou who never lost a battle, stand by me.